Well, amen. Thank you for the privilege of being here. I, I can truly say that I love the elders of Sovereign Grace Baptist Church, and I thought they liked me. But they sandwiched me between a pulpit dynamo like Blake Thompson. And I, before Brian said this to me, I was thinking either he genuinely and enthusiastically believes in biblical conversion, or he drinks a coffee that I want to get started on. <laughs> so they put me between him and lunch. And if that weren't bad enough, they give me the subject mortification. <laughs> what even is that? Mortification. Well, uh, I would love to tell you about all that God has done through your prayers for my wife, and hopefully you will get to see her tomorrow. Uh, but He's been faithful. He's heard your prayers. He's answered them. We are rejoicing in His kindness and mercy, and I'll share with you that some uh, other time. But um, I've been reading Elizabeth Elliot's new biography uh, that's come out recently, and I grew up in central Florida... And there was a place called Hampton DuBose Academy there in Central Florida, not far from where I used to go buy my handguns, uh, shoot straight in Apopka. Well, Hampton DuBose Academy is not far from there. And it was a private school. And come to find out, Elizabeth Elliott was a student at Hampton DuBose Academy. And they had a, a theme, a motto when she was there, and it was simply this, be not seem. And I've been reading about her fascinating life, and I keep coming back to that motto, be not seem. How many of us seem to be fighting the good fight rather than actually fighting the good fight? How many of us are more concerned with how we seem than how we are? We are combatants. We are pugilists. We are gladiators in a fight. And it is the fight of putting our sin to death. It is a vicious, bloody battle. Mortification. Romans chapter 6, verses 5 to 23. Let's read it together. For if we have been united with Him in a death like His... We shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. We know that our old self was crucified with Him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with Him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over Him. For the death He died, He died to sin once for all. But the life He lives, He lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, 
But present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law but under grace. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you, who were once slaves of sin, have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Would you pray with me? Father, I pray that you would show us your ways and teach us your paths. Guide us in your truth and teach us, for you are God, our Savior, and our hope is in you all the day long. Be glorified, we pray, in the proclamation of your word and our attentiveness to it. Build up the saints in the most holy faith. We thank you for Jesus and the difference he makes eternally in our lives. And it is in his name we pray. Amen. I was thankful for the message last night, uh, both of my brother Todd and of my newfound brother uh, David Pittman. And I couldn't help but think, uh, as, as Brother David was preaching about reconciliation and how that is our task to tell others how to be reconciled to God, I can do that. Any of us can do that. That's what we've got to do. We've got to tell others how we've been reconciled to God. And I heard him say a name a couple of times, Thomas Manton. And I feel a kinship with anyone who loves the Puritans. And I confess my unabashed enthusiasm for the English Puritans when I tell you that the first moment I heard that my assigned topic was mortification, I thought of John Owen, the dean of the Puritan theologians. Owen was known for his meticulous study and writing habits. The first time I remember hearing the English word elephantine was J.I. Packer's description of the, the thundering Latin prose of John Owen. He simply had too much to say to use short, compact sentences. Some have even suggested that once Owen finished writing about a subject, there was not much else that could be written about it. He has seven large volumes just on the book of Hebrews. And mortification of sin. He has 14 chapters, substantive chapters on our subject today. What is mortification? For moderns, 
The word generally refers to red-faced embarrassment. The preacher is at the height of his sermon and your cell phone goes off. You're mortified. You're embarrassed. You're red-faced. You're ashamed. That's how we normally think of mortification. I am mortified. But the Latin root of the term mortification gets more to the point of this message. Kill one part of your body while keeping the other parts alive. You are to mortify your sin. You are to kill it, to starve it, to put it to death in your daily existence. But you are to feed and promote the health of holiness, joy, godliness, patience, etc. Go to war with your sin. Fight transgression. Pull no punches with your so-called peccadillos. Cultivate a holy hatred for your iniquity that will make you not even want to toy with it. And yet that's what we do. I have this sin. I know I've got to deal with it. I'll get as close to the edge as I can without falling over. That's not mortification. That's not cultivating the right attitude toward our sin. God's Word hidden in your heart is the best inoculation against sin, which Ralph Venning, one of the Puritans, called the plague of plagues. Jeremiah Burroughs called it the evil of evils. And Thomas Watson, my favorite of the Puritans for his simplicity, the mischief of sin, it works its way mischievously into your life to destroy you. Our text is Romans 6, 5-23, the last word in the English Standard Version of which is our theme. Lord. It is the Greek word kurios, and it forms the basis for this conference. This is a gathering of believers to think deeply and to act accordingly about a specific topic, the Lordship of Jesus Christ. He is Lord. We confess Him as Lord, even to begin the Christian walk, and we submit to His Lordship. Our text in Romans commences and concludes with our vital connection to Jesus Christ as Lord. And that connection involves an equally vital presupposition with which I begin. You have heard it before said. You have likely used it in conversation. If Jesus is not Lord of all, He is not Lord at all. He is indeed Lord. We submit our finances to Jesus as Lord. We submit our calendars to Jesus as Lord. We submit our marriages and our dreams and our sufferings to Jesus as Lord. And we submit our struggle with the flesh, our tendency to sin, to Jesus as Lord. You are going to mortify your flesh. You're going to mortify and put to death your sin to the degree that you consciously, actively, enthusiastically, joyfully, lovingly submit to Christ as Lord. So some basic assumptions. I assume, as Paul did with the Romans, that you are a Christian. There may perhaps be some unbelievers here. If you are, you are most welcome. But the apostle was addressing born-again persons, and so I will be doing today. As a Christian, two of the most basic things that can be said about you are these. You love God and you hate sin. You love God and you hate sin. Your love for God is not natural. It is supernatural. Prior to conversion, you naturally were dead in your affections toward God. You loved self rather than Him. You followed the course of this world according to the devil's dictates. You were possessed by the spirit of the sons of disobedience. And you were by nature children of wrath. 
God did not make you robotically love Him. Instead, He made you spiritually alive. He gave you a new nature and a new heart, such that the most natural thing in the world was for you to love Him with every fiber of your being. He changed you so that you naturally loved Him. And that's what you do now. At the same time, your hatred for sin right now is not natural. It is supernatural. Sin was the air that you breathed as an unbeliever. It was your heartbeat. It was your every waking awareness. You were a slave to sin and you did not even know it. Like a fish is a slave to the water, you were a slave to selfishness, wickedness, and every form of idolatry. By God's grace in Jesus Christ, you did not cast off the bonds of iniquity to become an autonomous entity. No, you exchanged the shackles of sin for the ropes of righteousness. You are now free to be a slave of Jesus. And there is freedom indeed. Okay, Romans 6, 5-23 is a passage of Scripture packed with truth. And I mean packed with truth. Romans 1 let's look at some context, celebrates the power of the gospel to save lost sinners. And then it spells out in horrific detail what unabashed lengths men go to in their own celebration of sin. If you turn on the television, listen to the radio, hear a podcast, you're going to hear Romans chapter 1 today. It's all over the place. Men celebrate their evil. Romans chapter 2 does not let the moral religious sinner off the hook. Self-righteous churchgoers who depend upon their church membership, offerings, and careful keeping of rules to be right with God rather than a heart transformed by the Lord Jesus Christ are no better off than the vilest unclad marcher in a so-called pride parade. Religiosity does not save. And Paul slams that home in Romans 2. Romans chapter 3 speaks to the universality of sin. Not one of us is immune. Romans chapter 4 harkens back to the faith of Father Abraham and reminds us that faith in the promises of God is the vehicle for being justified in God's sight. (coughs) Romans chapter 5 introduces us to the glorious truth that we have had two federal representatives, two Adams. The first represented us in the garden, sinned, and plunged us into ruin. The second represented us at the cross, conquered, and gave us the eternal blessings of His grace. That's Romans 1-5 to in a nutshell. So we come to Romans chapter 6. And the immediate context of our text is verses 1-4. to It's the link between all that proceeds and our specific text today. And it begins with this question. What shall we say then? It's as if Paul is saying, in the light of what I've belabored for five chapters, what is your verdict? What say you? Are you going to settle down in the practice of habitual sin? Really? So that grace can abound? You are suggesting that as a blood-washed, set-apart, redeemed from the marketplace of slavery, sin, Satanism, and death, child of God, that because grace is offered to sinners... You will just remain in sin so more and more grace comes your way? There are people throughout church history who've actually argued that. They've said that we should sin and sin and sin so that grace can abound. F.F. Bruce, the late New Testament scholar, referred to them as deliberate antinomians. 
They opposed God's law with deliberate zeal. What is Paul's response? Does he say, let's table that discussion for a more opportune time? Does he say, that may be your view, but mine is different and we can both be right? He says, no! May genoita in Greek. May such a thought not even come into existence. No, never should we sin that grace may abound. Ephesians says that as an an unbeliever, you were dead in sin. Paul says as a believer, you are dead to sin. It is not your master any longer. We were the walking dead, physically quite vital, spiritually putrid and decaying. But God made us alive. Our spirits burst forth from the tomb to which the first Adam consigned us. And we were alive to God. Do you remember those first moments? Of conversion. Genuine genuine biblical conversion. We were alive. We knew Christ. We knew what it was to be forgiven. We knew joy like we had never experienced. But now, we were dead. Dead to sin. Sanctification is the lifelong umbrella term. We've heard it already this weekend for the Spirit's work in making us holy like Jesus. It involves our reading of Scripture, prayer, corporate worship, enduring of suffering, providential blessings and challenges, all of this and more. And a subset of that is what we're talking about today, mortification. How can we who died to sin, and we did die, how can we still live in sin? Freed from captivity to the devil, why do we voluntarily re-enlist in His hellish ranks? To fight for His side. Folly, wickedness, unthinkable. Baptism, Paul references here, is a good historical marker of that reality in your life. When you think back to your baptism, no, it didn't save you. Yes, it was putting on the jersey. It's a historical marker in your life. And it reminds you of this truth that you are dead to sin. The word baptism can refer to the rite of passage that we experience as new Christians. What hinders me from being baptized? The Ethiopian eunuch said, leaving behind the old life of sin and embracing the lordship of Jesus. That is in view here, but that is not the only understanding of baptism. Baptism is not just a rite of passage. It's not just the initial act of obedience for us. It is also an identification. Baptism identifies us. 1 Corinthians 10.2 says, All were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. All of Israel was identified with Moses. Baptism matters. No, it does not save, it does not regenerate, but it does picture our being plunged into the experience of Jesus. His life, His death, His resurrection. We are even said right now to be seated with Him in heavenly places. You are here and you are there. We participate in that. Pictured by us entering into the water. Going under the water. And coming up out of the water. I know churches that when that experience takes place, they clap, they cheer, they shout. That's a good thing. 
This is worth celebrating. Here is someone who has been plunged not into water only, but into Christ Himself. We as Christians joyfully identify with Jesus in His life. All He did in His life of obedience was the very ground of our justification. And we exult in His resurrection and the hope it gives us at a graveside, either a loved one's or our own. But His death, our identification with His death is what gives us the wherewithal to wage war against our sin. We like to identify with His life, but we must identify with His death. Paul goes on to say in this introductory section, because of all that Jesus accomplished for His sheep, we now walk in newness of life. Newness. The Greek word is kainates and has the idea of freshness. And some translations even say strangeness. As a believer, you are simply not what you were before. You are a new creation. We've used the illustration of a, of a caterpillar becoming a butterfly, the metamorphosis. But have you ever thought about that? Have you ever thought about the existence of a caterpillar? You've got, in many cases, these spikes and prickly hairs and colors that try to ward off birds from eating you. And all you do is spend your time on a branch munching on a leaf. That's your existence. It's earthbound. It's mundane. You're ugly. You look like something from an alien world. And then all of a sudden, the change happens. There's a moment when you are a caterpillar, and then there's a moment where caterpillar nest starts to fade away. And you become a butterfly or a moth. We change. We are different. And because we are different, we are in a war with the sin that remains in our members. Well, that's a little bit of the background coming into our text. Verse 5, Romans chapter 6. For if we have been united with Him in a death like His, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. Just a couple of observations before we dive in. First, mark these down. Libertinism is no answer to the mortification problem. Let all the rules go by the wayside. Do whatever you want. Paul addresses that in this notion of, shall we sin that grace may abound? Well, you might just say, well, I'm going to deal with... My, my sin and my flesh by just giving into it. I'm going to be forgiven anyway, so I'll just do what I want to do. That's no answer. But neither is legalism. Legalism is no answer to the mortification problem. Adding traditions of men, trying to go beyond what the Scripture says, setting up a, a list of Rules and regulations, that is no answer. You must fight. Libertinism and liberalism and, and, and uh, legalism, they are just excuses so that you don't have to fight. They're traps. They're too easy. Don't fall for either. That's one observation. Another, make sure that what you are mortifying, what you are putting to death, is actually sin. Know your Bible. I can't tell you, your elders can't tell you, something that is outside of Scripture is sin if the Bible doesn't say it. The Bible is enough to tell you what is right and what is wrong. The Bible is enough to tell you how to walk in obedience to Christ and things to avoid so that you are not disobedient. You can't go beyond Scripture. 
The devil would love for you to be killing the quote-unquote sins of card playing and movie going. And if you want to read some interesting studies, read history of how churches disfellowshipped members for those kinds of sins while they were practicing pride and bitterness in their hearts. Those are sins. Make sure that what you are mortifying is actually sin. And then finally, in any contest with an opponent, what do we always hear? Know your enemy. Yes, the devil is your enemy. Yes, the world system of rebellion against God is your enemy. And yes, your sinful flesh is your enemy. You must have a sound theology, doctrine of God. You must have a sound pneumatology, doctrine of the Holy Spirit. You must have a sound eschatology, doctrine of the end times. You must have a sound Christology, a right understanding of the person and work of Jesus, a right bibliology, understanding of the Bible, and a right hamartiology, study of sin. You've got to know what the Bible teaches about sin. What are we trying to kill in the process of mortification? There are some so-called preachers who say we need to unhitch from the Old Testament. And yet our richest understanding of what sin is in its ugliness, apart from the picture of the cross of Calvary, comes from the Old Testament. The language of Hebrew gives us concrete, sensual understandings of what sin is. Sin is missing the mark. Chatat in Hebrew. Missing the mark. Coming up short. God has a standard. And we aim for it. And we miss it. That's sin. So it's not just the vile things that come to your mind in those lists of sins in the New Testament, which we'll address at the end of this message, but it's the coming up short of God's standard of perfection. That is sin. So you've got to be killing imperfection and falling shortness in your life. Pesha, rebellion, transgression, going beyond. God says, do this, and you say, I'm going to go a little bit further. The Pharisees thought they were helping God out by adding all of these protections around the law. Do this and do this and don't do that and don't do that and you won't fall into the error of violating God's Word. God's Word doesn't need that kind of protection. Don't go beyond. Don't rebel. Don't transgress. Here's one of the most powerful words in Hebrew. I own moral innate twistedness. At the core of our beings as sinners... We're messed up. And that's what own means. We're twisted. We're not straight like we ought to be. Ra, simple word. Evil, as in an evil disposition. And rasha, guilty before the Lord. Sin is ugly. Sin kills. Sin is an offense to God. Sin will send us to hell. Sin can only be dealt with by Jesus at the cross. Sin will always be the brigand hiding behind the bushes throughout our earthly lives waiting to destroy us. We must be armed for the battle of mortification. We must fight. So how do we do it? Number one, think rightly. Verses 5 to 11. Think rightly. Verse 5. 
For if we have been united with Him in a death like His. Stop there. So you're a Greek scholar. You look at that if and you start thinking maybe there is a little particle, A, epsilon iota in Greek, and it's telling me that this is probably a first-class conditional clause. What does that mean? It means that in the mind of Paul, whether or not it's true, and it is, in the mind of Paul, this is fact. This isn't possible. This is real. Christ is the one with whom we have been united in a death like His. We have been united with Him. We've been identified with Him. We've been grafted into Him. There has been a contextual narrowing in Romans to get us to this point. Chapters 1-5 to get us to Romans 6. Romans 6, 1-4 get us to this moment. We really have been united with Him in a death like His. Paul says in Romans 7, and I wish we could address that today. Likewise, my brothers, you have also died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to Him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. We are dead to sin in Christ. We were dead in sin outside of Christ. We are dead to sin in Christ. Galatians 2, For though through the law I died to the law, so that I might live to God. Paul says, I died If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Paul said to the Colossians, you're dead in Christ. You don't have to follow all those rules, those regulations, those things that were precursors and looking ahead to His coming. Those things don't hold sway over you. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By His wounds you have been healed. So Paul makes it clear that we are dead. Think about Philippians 3. I don't know anybody in the New Testament who knew Christ like Paul. He knew Jesus. Undeniably. And what did he say was his great desire? I want to know Christ. Wait, Paul, you already know Him. I want to know Christ and the power of His resurrection. I'm with you, Paul. I I know Christ, but I want to know Him more. I want to know Him in the power of His resurrection. I'm all about that. And the fellowship of His sufferings. Wait a minute. Not that far. I want to know Christ, but I don't want to suffer. In the fellowship, the, the fellowship of His sufferings, being conformed to His death so that by all means I might attain to the resurrection from the dead. Paul wants to know Christ even in his death, especially in his death. He wants to be able to fight sin by knowing his participation in every aspect of Jesus, even in connection with his death. Since this is true, we know that we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Here we could end the sermon. Amen. Go to lunch. Here we get in the sermon. Just as your salvation is by faith, so is your mortification. 
We shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. Okay, I know that I'm going to be raised from the dead with Christ. Therefore, there's victory in my fight against sin daily. Okay, great. You go to heaven by believing in Jesus. You win the battle against your sin by believing in Jesus. There it is. Simple. Very. Easy. No way. I have never watched clips on YouTube of Mike Tyson fighting a fight in the ring and not said almost uncontrollably out loud, not me. I'm not going in there with that. But imagine, just for a moment, that you could be guaranteed that though you went 12 rounds with Mike Tyson and your body was punished and pummeled, that you would come out the other side completely unscathed, incredibly wealthy, and victorious. That's something of the fight that we have against sin. We're going to win it. But we've got to go through it. And we get eternal bragging rights, except we're not bragging on ourselves, we're bragging on Jesus who got us through it. Forever and forever. The fight is going to hurt, it's going to cost, but when it is done, we will be victorious in Him. So right thinking is the key. One sage writer of another day put it this way, if Satan can keep a Christian ignorant, he can keep him impotent. You're coming to events like this, you're reading solid books, you're studying meditation upon the Scripture, is helping you to grow competent as a fighter against your sin. All right, verse 6. We know that our old self was crucified with Him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. We know, but we also need to be reminded. I have been crucified with Christ, Paul said. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. He knows that. We know that, but we need to be reminded. So that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. Brought to nothing. If you're inclined, if you're taking notes, you want to underline that phrase, brought to nothing. It translates one Greek word, katargeo. And this is rich. Katargeo and pao can seem like two Greek words that are synonymous, but they have very important distinctions. And Paul makes that distinction in 1 Corinthians 13. You don't need to turn there. But he talks about prophecies and knowledge, katargeo. But he talks about tongues, pao. Tongues stop. They cease. They come to an end. They served a purpose in the apostolic era. And then that purpose ended But prophecy and knowledge, there's going to come a time when we don't need preacher prophets to proclaim and expound to us in conferences like this. The Word will be in the presence of the living Word. We won't need proclamation. We won't need that knowledge. We'll have immediate knowledge in His presence. But that's going to come to an end. Well, so it is here. He says, so that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. It's going to take a process. And that process is mortification. 
We're going to bring the body of sin to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Well, verse 7, For one who has died has been set free from sin. The Emancipation Proclamation has been written, read, and issued at Calvary. We are free. Now we must work out the implications of that freedom and act like free men and women. And we do that by fighting our sin. No returning to the plantation. For one who has died has been set free from sin. A patently obvious statement, almost as if Paul is saying, are you paying attention here? Listen up. I know lunch is getting ready. Are you paying attention? A dead slave is no longer sent to the fields. No more back-breaking bending. No more fingers bleeding from the sharp points of the cotton bowls. No more whip. Paul goes even further with our freedom here. It is not just release from bonds, but he actually uses the word for justification. He says this is judicial freedom. We are freed from the bonds of slavery to sin. We're freed from the guilt that is associated with sin. If the Son makes you free, you're free indeed. For Jesus' sake, on the basis of His righteousness, we are declared not only free, but righteous. Verse 8, this part of the passage is not only insisting that we think rightly in our battle against sin, it is actually showing us how to think rightly and biblically. And I love how the Bible does that. It tells us truth, and it also shows us how to think truthfully. And that's what the Bible does here as well. Verse 8, now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with Him. It is showing us how to put two and two together to get four, theologically speaking. We have died with Christ. That is a fact. About that, there is no argument. So it naturally follows, we will also live with Him. Paul is driving home the truth that our mortification depends upon right thinking, and right thinking includes reminders, regular, constant, from all angles, that we are vitally connected to Jesus. You belong to Him. You are in Him. You are baptized into Him. Every aspect of Jesus, you are a participant in. His life, His death, His resurrection... You are in Christ. Well, verses 9 to 11. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over Him. For the death He died, He died to sin once for all. But the life He lives, He lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Now just a quick aside, once for all. Does that mean He died once for all people? No. He died once for all time. No matter how many times and places today around the world, the popish, grotesque sacrifice of the mass takes place in Catholic churches, it doesn't mean that Jesus is dying again and again. They believe He is, but He's not. Once for all. It's over. For the death He died, He died to sin once for all, but the life He lives, He lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. We know. Now this is a different word from what He used in verse 6. That was gnosko. This is oida. This is intuitive knowledge. We know in the depths of our being that Jesus killed death when He died on the cross and rose victoriously. He died 
He really, really died once for all, never to be repeated. He's dead to sin and alive to God. And because we are in Him, that is how we are to consider ourselves. The word consider or reckon is in the standard Greek lexicon defined this way. To determine by mathematical process, reckon, calculate, consider as. The world has their own way of demonically twisting and corrupting this. Some boys reckon themselves to be girls. Some girls reckon themselves to be boys. Some people reckon themselves to be cats and insist on using a litter box. That's corruption. What Paul says is reckon yourself dead. We we can say theoretically, I'm willing to die for Christ. We can say theoretically, I began my discipleship with Him by taking up my cross. Paul says think about this. Reckon yourself dead. Now there's lots of implications to that. What have you got to fear if you're dead? Nothing. You're dead to sin. So fight sin. We must understand who our Lord is, what He has accomplished for us, and what He demands of us. We must calculate what it means to be dead to sin and alive to God. Paul claimed to die daily. Jesus said basic discipleship involves daily cross-bearing. Life is short. It is going away. Embrace your dying to sin so that you might truly live. That's mortification. All right, second. Not only think rightly, but live intentionally. Verses 12 to 14. Verse 12. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body. May un basilueto. Emphatically. Do not therefore let sin reign as king in your mortal body. Why? You already have a king. His name is Jesus. Dethrone king sin in your mortal body. In your fight against sin, you've got to reckon yourself dead and you've got to emphatically and intentionally, willfully say, sin is not king. Jesus is king. And I will follow Him. Your lusts, your passions, your hungers, your wants, to the degree they are sinful, rebel against them. You are a colonist of heaven, and king sin is not worthy of your fealty. The command not to sin and not to let sin reign, along with the command not to present your members to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, these are present active imperatives. They are, they are ongoing, they are active, they are commands. Keep on not letting sin reign. Keep on not presenting your members to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. Keep on presenting yourselves to God and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. Sin was your boss. Sin was your king, but no more. Actively rebel against its constant attempts to reassert sovereignty in your life. You once used your mind, your hands, your voice, your feet, your emotions for evil. Enough! Not now. You once presented yourself to the world, the flesh, and the devil. Desist! Now use your faculties. Train your faculties. Sanctify your faculties for God's holy use. Verse 14. Sin shall not be your master. Sin 
will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. Oh, what fodder for the Christian's mind to chew upon. Here is a foretaste of what Paul will address at length in chapter 7. The law is a blessing. We don't toss aside the law. We don't unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament. The law is a blessing. It does exactly what it was intended to do. It shows God's holy, righteous standard. And it shows us that we can't keep it. And it drives us to Jesus. It drives us to the cross. The law cannot restrain the flesh. It reveals our wickedness. It condemns us with its demands of perfection. It drives the elect to the cross where grace, which not only saves but energizes our mortification, is to be found. Well, think rightly. Live intentionally. And finally, fight slavishly. Fight slavishly. It's easy to say, kill your, kill your sin, put to death what remains in your flesh of what is evil. In what manner do we do that? We fight as slaves. Think about gladiators that were slaves. They were slaves with a purpose. That was to fight for the entertainment of the emperor and the crowds. We're slaves, and we are slave gladiators who fight. One of the things taught in the old evangelism explosion witnessing strategy, you'll probably remember this, Brother David, is preclude objections. He used to tell us that all the time, preclude objections. Think in advance what people are going to say in, in negativity about the gospel and be ready for that. that. That's good, sound advice. It is helpful, and certainly it is what Paul does here. He precludes the objection. If the law does not hold sway over me, but grace does, maybe I can just do whatever I want, including sin, and grace will cover it. It's not just Roman Catholics who believe that, by the way. There's lots of people who live as if they can do whatever they want, knowing that Jesus died for all of their sins on the cross. He's going to overlook this one. That's not how it works. They believe in a grandfatherly God who will overlook their so-called minor flaws because He's just so nice. They believe they can say a few prayers or do some good deeds or swat themselves on the back of the hand and all will be well. And Paul again puts that forcefully to rest. He says, may it never be. Well, verse 15. Are we to sin because we're not under law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know? That if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin which leads to death or of obedience which leads to righteousness. There's your options. Here is that intuitive knowledge, oida, again. You know this. You've got to serve somebody. Some of you are old enough to remember that great troubadour theologian Bob Dylan. You've got to serve somebody. You're either going to serve sin or you're going to serve righteousness. There is no middle ground. No one can serve two masters, for either he'll hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other, Jesus said. Jesus answered, Truly I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. I said we could have ended the sermon earlier. We could end it here. Mortification could be simplified to, to choosing the right shackles. It's your choice. You choose the shackles of slavery to sin or you choose the shackles of slavery 
to righteousness. Verse 17. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. Oh, I love this. You want to fight your sin? Good. That is one of the evidences that you're a genuine Christian. Amen. You must fight slavishly as a slave. You wake up in the morning and you choose to be a slave of righteousness instead of a slave to sin. You voluntarily submit to the Lordship of Jesus over your day. You strap on the weapons of your warfare, which are not carnal, but are mighty to the pulling down of strongholds. You commit to be an obedient servant from the heart. And your obedience is specifically to the standard of teaching to which you were committed or entrusted. You are not in this battle alone. You do not go into this battle unaided and unguided. You have the standard of teaching. You have the Word. The Bible. It is enough. It is sufficient for this fight. And notice how Paul says that this standard of teaching, of teaching is that to which you were committed or entrusted. Let's say you're at the airport and you meet somebody in a quick passing of... of uh, you're going from one direction, they're going the other direction, and you never see that individual again. You give them a track, you share the gospel with them, and you don't know what happened. But you shared enough of the truth of God's Word that you can entrust them to that standard of teaching. You can entrust them to as much of God's Word as they got and know that they're in good hands. When I was at Riverside as, as a chaplain, I used to give cadets Bibles more than I gave them tracts. Because I knew that that's the best tract there is. This is God's Word. It is enough to save and it is enough for the fight. Well, closing out, verses 19 to 23. Mm. I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. Paul's not insulting the Romans. He's just acknowledging that they are human and they have boundaries of what they can grasp. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness leading to sanctification. You used to actively sin, now actively fight sin. When you were slaves of sin, verse 20, you were free in regard to righteousness. You didn't wake up in the morning as an unbeliever and think, how can I please God today? How can I fight sin today? That wasn't on your mind. It wasn't on your radar because you lived sin. You were free in regard to righteousness. But when, when you consider, verse 21, what fruit you were getting at the time from the things of which you are now ashamed, you were getting no fruit you were getting misery. You were getting emptiness. You were getting lostness. You were getting separation from God. For the end of those things is indeed death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. I get Jesus now. I become more and more like Him throughout my life. And oh, by the way, at the end, the icing on the cake, I get to live forever with Him. The best is yet. Tomorrow's going to be better than today. You'll be that much closer to His return. You'll be more like Him. And that will go on forever. You'll learn more about Jesus throughout eternity. You'll have more understanding of Him to worship and adore forever. Uh, well, 
This harkens back, verses 19 to 23, when we get to the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Brother Todd preached last night about the cost of discipleship in our witness. So let's be careful to give a full disclosure of the gospel. We use verse 23 often in isolation. I would say let's pause. Let's slow down and let people know that the gospel is free, but it will cost them everything. And the gospel frees you, but it frees you unto a new slavery. To righteousness, which doesn't pay in wages, but in the free gift of God. Eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Conclusion. Mortification. It is a war we are all in. It is a war none of us will win in an ultimate sense until we are glorified with our Lord. We are co-combatants in this war, you and I. It behooves us to fight sin together. I ask you, and I ask you on behalf of each other, hold each other accountable to fight sin. Because the more holy and sinless the church is, the better for all of us the better for our witness, the better for our own sanctification. Fight as co-combatants. We both want the same thing, for our worthy bridegroom to have a chaste, pure, increasingly sin-free bride. There are others, perhaps here today, who are not in the fight. Sin is their home. Their warm and cozy, if tattered and smelly, blanket of familiarity. It is what they know. Sin for them is friend rather than foe. Pray for them. Witness to them. Tell them that sin always betrays like Judas and like Brutus. It betrays unto death. Jesus Christ will liberate them by repentance and faith into the glorious freedom we know as slave gladiators of the Lord Jesus hacking at sin with the sword of the Spirit, amply armored with the breastplate of righteousness, perfectly protected by the shield of faith. Mortify your sin. Go back to that Old Testament that someone wants you to unhitch from and read the latter chapters of Deuteronomy and see how God promises if you do certain things, you'll be blessed. And if you sin in certain ways, you'll be cursed. It's that simple. Read the New Testament list like 1 Corinthians 6. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral. Maybe that's your struggle. Idolaters adulterers, men who practice homosexuality, thieves, greedy, drunkards, revilers, swindlers, none of them will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. You want to know where to start in the fight? There's a list. It's not comprehensive, it's not exhaustive, but it's a good field manual for the battle. Galatians 5, 1 Timothy 1, Revelation 21, others. Jesus is your worthy Lord. Take up the example of Samuel and hack the agag of your sin to pieces. And back to John Owen. His text was Romans 8, 13. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body you will live. Lord Jesus, thank You that You have put us in the battle, that You have given us identification with You in Your life, in Your resurrection, and in Your death. 
Sin no longer has dominion. We are under grace. Help us to fight from the position of victory that you have won for us. May you be glorified as we fight faithfully. In Jesus' name, amen.